This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, a conversation with a reporter who infiltrated a neo-Nazi group and exposed a Canadian Forces member as a recruiter. A new report finds a troubling number of Canadians are feeling an increased frustration with their democratic system. Also, a call for nutritional information requirements to be extended to alcoholic beverages. Plus, one man's quest to personally speak with each of his Facebook friends before he unfriends them all. The Department of National Defense says Master Corporal Patrick Matthews will no longer participate in military activities in any form or return to work and will officially leave the forces in the coming weeks. In a statement, the department says the measures were deemed necessary considering the seriousness of the allegations and the risk to unit morale and cohesion. Matthews had applied to leave the forces in April but came under the spotlight last week after a Winnipeg Free Press story linked the combat engineer to a neo-Nazi group called The Base. There have been no arrests or charges and the Defense Department says their investigation investigation is ongoing. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. So yeah, pretty disturbing story made even more disturbing by the news today that this uh, Patrick Matthews is now missing. RCMP say he was reported missing on Monday, was last seen by his family on the night of August 24th on Saturday. But it is very troubling indeed that somebody who is wearing the uniform of this country was a member of the Canadian forces, would be linked to, tied to, uh, a neo-Nazi group. Something uh, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network describes as being amongst the most extreme of the extreme. I mean, not just the fact that those kinds of neo-Nazi views would be present in the Canadian forces. You know, views that are antithetical to what this country stands for. But obviously, as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, having access to weapons and training. Perhaps then even trying to recruit others. So we've been hearing more as of late about this group, The Base, and their recruitment efforts in Winnipeg. And a lot of this, as you heard in that report from Terry Bedwell, has come to light due to the reporting uh, of our next guest. Ryan Thorpe is a reporter with the Winnipeg, uh, Winnipeg Free Press. And I'll bring this story to light through his work. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, by the way, then, what, what is the latest? Because now we're hearing today, as I mentioned, that Patrick Matthews uh, has been reported missing. What, what do we know about his situation? Uh, we don't know a ton. This is developing as we speak. Um, RCMP have confirmed uh, that he was reported missing on Monday. He was last seen by his family on Saturday evening. Um, I've spoken to an acquaintance of his who has said that, you know, people are worried for him obviously and that they have you know driven by his home and tried to contact him on a cell phone uh to no avail all right so there have been stories in in the last few weeks about this group uh the base and their recruitment drive now they they were fairly brazen in a sense then right they were, they were putting up uh posters around winnipeg weren't they 
That's correct. Yeah, that's how this all began for me, really, was that we got a news tip here at the Winnipeg Free Press that uh, the Moit nationalist uh, recruitment posters were, were going up around the city. Um, and uh, I did you know, some digging into what this group was about. And uh, ultimately, I had a conversation with my editors and I'm, I made the choice to reach out to this group posing as a white nationalist interested in joining because uh, I figured that was the only real way to get insight into what exactly are they doing here in Winnipeg and what are they doing around Canada? Right, because they, they have a presence in other countries around the world, don't they? Certainly. They were founded in 2018 in the United States by a man who goes by the pseudonym Roman Wolf, who claims to be a veteran of the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. They're actively recruiting in Canada. They have members in Europe. And there's recent indication that they also have members in Australia and potentially South Africa. All right. So obviously, as you say, this is a story that that uh, is is worth covering. But I guess as you you'd alluded to, you made the decision then that you wanted to learn about this group from the inside. So that meant some some infiltration. So how how did you approach this? Yeah. So right at the beginning, I figured you know one option would have been to interview some experts on far right extremism to track where the posters are popping up in Winnipeg, and, and then put that together into an article. But it would have been quite limited in terms of what we got. So instead, I, uh, I sent an email to uh, the contact address that was included on the posters, um, essentially claiming that I was a white nationalist who lived in Winnipeg and was interested in learning more and potentially joining. That led to a number of email exchanges between myself and the organization's founder, uh, eventually, I was invited to download the encrypted messaging app Wire, which was the platform they were using to communicate. And uh, I did a voice call interview with the, the group's founder and, and then with a bunch of other members uh, listening in. And then finally, I was told that, you know, the final kind of hurdle uh, on this path to membership was I needed to meet their Winnipeg recruiter in person. So I set a date and time with him provided a description of myself so he could pick me out of the crowd and uh, and met with him. And was this Patrick Matthews then? This was. I, I didn't know it at the time, um, but uh, at that meeting, uh, I tried to get as many biographical details out of this individual so that I could later use it to identify him. So by the end of that night, I had learned that this person's real first name was Patrick, that they were 26 years old, that um, they at least claimed to be a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, trained as a combat engineer, um, that they had grown up in the countryside, previously lived in Winnipeg, and were now residing in Beaujour. Um, and it is those details that, you know, I took, and thanks to some sources I developed, you know, in the community and in the, the Canadian Armed Forces itself, I was able to confirm that this individual in question was uh Patrick Matthews, a master corporal in the Canadian Army Reserves, who had served since uh, 2010 and was indeed trained as a combat engineer. Wow. What else did you learn at that meeting then about, you know, what what they were up to, their their beliefs, all of that kind of stuff? Well, so this group really is, um, it, it represents the most, you know, violent, radical fringes of the far-right hate movement today. Um, this is a group that is actively organizing paramilitary training at events that are called hate camps uh, across North America. And uh, Mr. Matthews uh, intended to begin uh, paramilitary training here in Manitoba. 
I learned that there was a recruitment drive also uh, taking place in Saskatchewan, and I was told that there was a cell of an unknown size operating somewhere on the East Coast. Um, you know, one thing that's also worth noting is that this this group does have something of a sister organization called the Adam Waffen Division, which is quite similar, although they're distinct entities. And that group has had uh, members uh, revealed to be in Ontario and BC. So we're talking about a lot of Canadian provinces that have this type of activity. Yeah, and it's pretty chilling. And as you say, I mean, the, the views are pretty extreme. Uh, and and there is a commitment to violence, right? It's it's not just the ideology, but th- this is paramilitary training they're engaged in, and, and they're doing so for a reason, it would seem. Yeah, they, the reason is because they think a race war is coming. And uh, not only do they think one is coming, they can't wait for it to get here. And they want to uh, do things to destabilize the system so that it hopefully gets here faster. Um, you know, this is a group that uh, is particularly influenced by the views of this kind of obscure uh, neo-Nazi from the U.S. named James Mason, who pioneered this bizarre blend of, um, you know, the worldviews of, of a mixture of the worldviews of Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson. You know, it's it's not just the Nazism these people are interested in. They also uh, idolize uh, serial killers. You know, they, they revere and venerate these kind of, you know, abhorrent figures who, who carry out uh, murders or, you know, uh, mass terrorist attacks. Yeah, which is which is chilling. So the fact then that that uh, we we've got a member of the Canadian Armed Forces involved here, and Patrick Matthews talking to you quite openly about that, about his his expertise. What was your sense then of how he or or how the base itself in, intended to use that connection? Are they trying to recruit people who are in the military because they have that expertise, or because they might even have access to to weaponry? No, that's exactly right. So they are um, trying to actively recruit folks who have uh, military experience or backgrounds in chemistry and engineering. These groups are also, you know, uh, proponents of pushing their membership to join the the military so that they can get training and, you know, um, and then they take that skill set and they organize these paramilitary training events where the folks with military experience um, are able to pass along these skills to other members of the network. I mean, for you personally, I mean, this is obviously very important uh, journalistic work, but there's clearly a a risk involved. These are, as as you've laid out here, potentially very dangerous people. I mean, what what kind of a risk do you think you've you've undertaken yourself or are you, you worried about any potential fallout from this? Um, so I'm certainly not cavalier about, about what I've done. There is a number of safety, uh, protocols that, that myself and the newspaper put in place in the lead up to publication, some that we consider uh, continue to have in place now. I mean, ultimately, I felt that, um, you know, whatever was going on here in Winnipeg, at the very beginning of this, I felt it needed to be exposed. And I was yeah. pretty sure that if I, you know, didn't do this, um, you know, no one was going to. Um, so that was pretty much the calculus for me. And then it just became a question of, okay, how do I do go about this in a way that's as smart and safe as possible? And I mean, you know, the, the reality is, uh, and, you know, <laughs> it, it, it probably wouldn't have come to light otherwise. It doesn't appear as though the military was, was aware of this. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? So the military has said that, you know, Matthews made some utterances back in April that were a cause for concern and kind of flagged him. But uh, it's not clear at all to what extent they were aware of his views. Um, and at, at the very least, certainly the public would not know about, you know, a member of the Canadian Armed Forces being active in a neo-Nazi paramilitary group uh, had we not, uh, you know, done the reporting that we did here. 
And I mean, maybe he's the only one, but I guess there's the, the very troubling question lingering in all of this, whether there are others. So what, what do we know about how the military is, is not just acting on what we've learned about this particular individual, but others who, who may be in the Canadian forces, too? Yeah, it's certainly a wider problem. Uh, the research on this is very clear. In uh, November 2018, the military uh, uh, had an, an internal report published which looked at this precise issue. Uh, they tracked over a four-year period, or roughly four years, and they found that there was 53 members of the Canadian Armed Forces who were either uh, members of a hate group or had undergone uh, a process of radicalization and now held extremist views. Um, you know, so this is a small number. It obviously doesn't reflect upon the vast, vast majority of men and women who serve in the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, but one extremists in the ranks is too many. And the other thing that's worth noting is that, you know, these are just the people who have slipped up in some way and exposed themselves. Um, you know, they're, at the same time that this report was published, uh, Patrick Matthews is flying under the radar. So yeah. the reality is we don't know the scope of this problem. I mean, was was he recruited, do we know, or, or did he join the military already holding these views and had joined the military, you know, for the purposes of, of getting weapons training or recruiting others? Did, do we have a clear picture of that yet? Um, I believe Patrick Matthews was radicalized during his time in the military. So he joined in 2010, which would have been essentially right out of high school from okay. him. And when I met him in person, he had essentially said that, you know, he had been what he called a national socialist, but what is a neo-Nazi. He had said he had held that view for about two years. And um, he had, uh, you know, kind of walked me through his, I guess, ideological history and how he kind of processed from, you know, a, something of a libertarian to what he would have called, like, you know, a racial realist or a racist, and then eventually embracing uh, neo-Nazism. So this was a process that unfolded during his time in the military. Right. So there are other people, people who reached out to him, people who radicalized him then. Yeah, it seems to be, you know, he probably went down some internet rabbit holes. Uh, certainly, uh, friends of his have said that, you know, he would talk about uh, 4chan, 8chan, things like that. It's, it's how a lot of people uh, do get radicalized, you know, is through these uh, internet rabbit holes like that. All right, much more on all of this, winnipegfreepress.com. Ryan, as I say, some amazing journalism, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you for the invite. All right, take care. That is Ryan Thorpe. He's a reporter with the Winnipeg Free Press uh, who broke this story that is now having national repercussions. The military has cast this guy out. There are a couple of formal investigations underway and, and maybe representative of a deeper problem. Again, I mean, you think about the thousands upon thousands of men and women that are part of the Canadian Armed Forces. We're talking about, you know, maybe in the dozens here, right? Very tiny, tiny percentage of those who have made the decision, uh, you know, to wear that uniform and uh, devote themselves to, to defending this country. But there were those who have other agendas, right? And it's, it's something that the Canadian forces need to be on guard for, those who are signing up. Are they doing so for more sinister purposes? Or are there those in the military who are vulnerable to this kind of recruiting or this kind of radicalization? Well, if you're feeling frustrated with Canadian democracy or our political system, you're not alone. This new report out this week finds 70 percent feel the government doesn't care about what ordinary Canadians think. Nearly 60 percent are only, in fact, moderately convinced that Canada should be governed by 
a representative democracy. And that's a number that's grown over the last couple of years. So a lot of Canadians are feeling alienated, feeling cynical, feeling frustrated with our political system. And it's really not something that, that we can ignore. Well, this is all contained in a new report uh, from Simon Fraser University. It's called State of Democracy, an Appeal of Populism. Joining us on the line is Shauna Sylvester, Executive Director of Simon Fraser University's Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue, co-founder and senior advisor with the SFU Public Square. Shauna, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rob. Well, why is it important uh, to, to, to understand what's, what's going on in Canada and, and to, to gather this kind of information? Well, we started this whole study about two years ago. We wanted to really understand what was going on in democracy, given what was going on in the rest of the world. And we did a review of 10 years of opinion research on democracy in the country. And we found some disturbing trends emerging in about 2010. Most of the indicators on democracy started to fall. And in 2012 to 2017, we saw quite an interesting trend where there was an 11-point drop in the number of Canadians who preferred democracy as their form of government. And at the same time, an 11% incline in the number of Canadians who either didn't care or wanted authoritarianism or militarism. So that raised some pretty serious alarm bells. So we began doing some deep research. And what we've released this week is a major, one of the most comprehensive studies on Canadian democracy in, in, that's been released in a while. It's 3,500 Canadians, over 3,500 Canadians, and it really probes our attitudes, beliefs, culture, um, and views of, of the strength of democracy in the country. Yeah, and, and th- there are some alarming findings here. I mean, what, what comes across to me, Sean, it feels like there's a sense of apathy, that we're just not enthusiastic about democracy or political system because we're convinced that it's, you know, maybe it's not working for us or that the people we're electing aren't, aren't listening to us. That it kind of feels, I, I think to a lot of Canadians, almost like a waste of time. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I actually think there's some different findings in this study. So one of the things that I had expected to see was an, incre- an, an increase in the numbers that were turning away from democracy. What we actually saw, and this is the good news of this study, we saw a 12-point gain in oh, yeah. the number of Canadians who think democracy is the right way forward. So there's okay. a, there's, that is important so that, that Canadians actually think democracy is important. It's valuable. It's important. But they don't think it's being practiced here. If we ask Canadians, um, do you believe Canada is being governed democratically, only 10% will strongly agree with that, and 43% won't agree with it at all. Uh And so they actually believe it's important, but it's not working. It's not happening here. We're not practicing democracy. So I actually says. That says to me that that isn't apathy. That says they expect more and they want in. And then what we did is we tried to probe that a little bit more and say, well, what do they think is not working? They said, well, voting doesn't matter. If I vote, it doesn't seem to matter. Uh, 48% say it doesn't matter. Um, 56% say that no matter how much they might try to have an influence, they can't really influence government decision-making. And I think the more concerning statistic is that 68% of Canadians feel that elected officials don't care about what people like them think. So it's this disconnection. Yes, democracy, but not the way it's being practiced. And in fact, we don't think or trust that government officials care what we think. And so we want that to change. So in there is some, some interesting, interesting messages. 
Well, there is. Uh, 44% of Canadians aren't entirely convinced that voting gives them a say on how the country is run. 56% believe they can't influence the government. 68% believe elected officials don't care what ordinary people think. 61% feel their interests are being ignored in favor of the establishment. So that, that's where, you know, when I look at those numbers, that's where I kind of get the sense that people almost feel like, well, what's the point? Or it's, it's a waste of time. There's, there's that frustration that comes through in those numbers. Yeah, and I think frustration is better than apathy. Yeah. <laughs> if I was, no, it, it's interesting because within 18 to 24-year-olds, they actually um, are more optimistic than they can have an impact on democracy. And the people that are quite cynical about democracy are over the age of 65, but they are the most supportive of democracy as the, as the preferred form of government. It's like that is our community who either their parents or grandparents or they were involved in uh, fighting for democratic freedoms and values. The other interesting thing is people who are foreign, foreign-born Canadians are far more likely to support democracy and think that they can have an influence and that voting matters. So, again, possibly people who have come out of situations where they know what it's like to fight for democratic freedoms. I think there's this group of us that haven't, that take for granted what it is to live in a democracy. And, um, and in fact, that's where we saw another level of troubling statistics, um, which, which suggests that we might be open uh, to some of the more extreme anti-democratic race-based populism that's emerging in other parts of the country. Well, and I guess that's one of the reasons why it's so important to pay attention to, to this, because if we ignore it, if we allow it to fester, if it, if it gets worse, uh, you know, we, we have some indication what we're, we see elsewhere of, of what it can lead to, right? Yeah, and I mean, I, I know, and I know that there are many Canadians that have served in different countries, and, and um, I've worked in Afghanistan in conflict zones, and I know what it's like, not how quickly those freedoms can go, how on a dime conflict can emerge. So it's, it's something where we, we can't be apathetic about it. We have to look for those signs. And one of the things that we're trying to do is shine the spotlight on some of the conditions that are starting to emerge that demonstrate cracks in our foundations. So where democracy is, a, the whole system of government is based on our notion of equality. Mm-hmm. Well, in this study, one in three Canadians would say foreign-born Canadians... Do not should not have the same rights as people born here in terms of how government runs. We're talking about citizens. So some citizens are more equal than others. Okay, that's not democracy. No. We are also seeing here, Canada's been known globally around the world for having advanced human rights and, and extended those human rights. Well, we're seeing some statistics, some cracks again forming where one in four of us are saying there's too many protections for minorities or too much religious freedom. So those are indications of, of, uh, that we might be vulnerable to that race-based populism you've seen emerge in other countries. There was another statistic here that I thought was interesting. It's because Canada's, we're a fairly, you know, moderate-sized country. We really need to trade. We really need to maintain. We've always punched above our weight globally. It's who we are because it's what gives us some power in in the world. Well, you're starting to see the rhetoric of America first come in now to Canada. It's a Canada first. There's 58% of Canadians who would vote for a candidate that put a Canada first label first, even if it meant undermining our relationship with our allies. So those things are different than what we have known in this country. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's puzzling to me what's driving this, because really, ultimately, our, our system hasn't changed. We're no more or less democratic than we were 
you know, 20 or 30 years ago. But obviously, attitudes are, are shifting. Our perception of Canadian democracy is changing. Well, I think that um, it is changing. I think that there's this new version of democracy that says it's not just at the voter ballot box. It's not just about voting. It's not just about institutional change. It's about culture. I need, as a citizen, to know that my voice counts. I need to be engaged. I need elected officials to see and, and know that they're working in my interests. That's what we expect of our democracy. And it seems, based on this study, that that's not what we're getting. And so there's a, there's a really clear, in my mind, call to, to elected officials, to others, that we need to um, engage authentically with citizens. It's, not, it's no longer about marketing and a message to them and saying, you know, right message, the right audience, the right time. It's actually, no, engage them in the discussion. Engage them in the debate, in the decision-making. Um, and that kind of democracy seems to be what people are craving. So, so you think a lot of this falls on, on the politicians or the would-be politicians then? No, thanks for catching me on that, because I actually don't. I actually think elected officials, we're pretty hard on our elected officials. I don't think it all stands on, on elected officials. I think that what this study shows, this is much deeper. It's, it's about a culture. One of the interesting findings that we have is that um, the more people have a sense of belonging in their community, the more likely they're going to participate and engage in their democracy, and the more likely they're going to trust institutions. That's an important indicator. So if people don't feel isolated, if they feel like they belong, then they're going to be more active. Well, that, that's not about elected officials. That's about each, each of us looking around and saying, who, who are we disconnected with? Who, who can we connect with? How can we address isolation in our own communities? How can we address belonging? Uh, so that's, that's an interesting finding uh, from this study. Well, yeah, some important numbers. Uh, Shona, where can people find this, this study? So if you go to democracydialogue.ca, you'll find our website. Uh, you can also look on us at the SFU Morris J. Wask uh, Center for Dialogue on Facebook. You can look for us on Twitter as well, but democracydialogue.ca. All right. Thanks again for joining us here today, Sean. I appreciate this. Thanks so much, Rob. All right. Take care. Shauna Sylvester, Executive Director of Simon Fraser University's Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue, co-founder and senior advisor of FS SFU Public Square. So some interesting findings here in terms of how we view our, our democratic system or even how we view democracy itself. Whether it's calories, carbs, sugar... I mean, it does seem as though there, there's an increasing awareness these days, maybe about what we're putting in our bodies. And, and I think people are, are trying to be conscious of, uh, of what they're consuming. And I do get the sense that, that you know, certainly businesses are responding. There does seem to be a trend happening right now of what are, I guess, low-calorie alcoholic beverages, or at least companies that are willing to talk numbers and say, hey, our beverage has only X number of calories. Because I guess unless companies are, are boasting about that, you don't necessarily know. I mean, if you look hard enough, you could probably find the information. But it is true. I mean, I think we know that if you're having a beer or a glass of wine, that's got calories. But how many? I mean, if you're mixing rum and Coke, at least you can look at the can of Coke and see how many calories or how much sugar's in that. Uh, but not necessarily uh, with whatever you're mixing it with. So I, I do think it's, it, there's a challenge for people to at least make those informed decisions. Honestly, I have no idea. 
Uh, if I'm pouring myself a nice pint of porter, how many calories in that? Or whether, you know, porter's different than an IPA or I don't know. Maybe they're all the same. But I got to be honest. I honestly don't know. So is there a lack of information when it comes to uh, alcohol and caloric intake? How many calories are people getting from booze? What percentage of our recommended caloric intake does our alcohol consumption recommend? And how do we make that information more readily available? Well, some new research out today from the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Joining us to talk more about all of this is Adam Shirk. He's a postdoctoral fellow with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria. Adam, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I mean, is, is there a real lack of, of knowledge, a lack of consumer information when it comes to this? There is. We found it pretty surprising. So one of the reasons that we wanted to do this study is that I myself, even though I work in alcohol research, I didn't know how many calories were in a can of beer or in a shot of spirits, this type of thing. And the reason that usually is that most people don't know is because it's not labeled on the container, unlike almost all other food and beverages in Canada that that have mandatory labeling. Mm -hmm. So we wondered why this is, and we looked into just how many calories we are getting from our alcoholic beverages. Uh, And it's probably more than people would, would guess, I imagine. It's a lot more than many would guess. It's certainly more than I guessed before we started the study. So we found that among drinkers, um, and I'm including myself here, so all of us as drinkers, we receive more than one-tenth of all our recommended daily calories in the form of alcohol. About 11% of our recommended daily calories are in the form of alcohol. And what are we basing that on? Or how are we calculating that? That's a great question. It's, that's an average. So it's, mm-hmm. it's an average drinker, someone who drinks the average amount, and then it's averaging out all of their drinks on every single day. So many of us don't drink, the number is 1.8. We don't drink 1.8 drinks every single day. But if we did, if we spread our drinking out over every day, then we'd get this number, which is 11% or 250 calories every single day from alcoholic beverages. Right. And so then if you look at what's, you know, recommended daily caloric intake, you take that and you're getting roughly 10 or 11% then of, of exactly. calories just, yeah. just in alcoholic beverages. That's right. And so what, I mean, what is that comparable to then? If we can try to quantify, compare it to uh, other, other food or snacks that, that we consume. Yeah, good question. So the 250 calories, the average, that's about equivalent to a bag of chips that we grab at the corner store. But then if we look at like a a drinking occasion, if we drink a bit more than average, say around five drinks, um, we call that a binge drink, just five drinks, but many of us have been known to do that time to time. Mm -hmm. Then you're getting a lot more, you're getting like 600 calories per day. And this is about as much as in a Big Mac per se. So depending on how much we're drinking in a day, we're probably taking in more calories than we, than we expect from alcoholic beverages. And we don't usually consider that in when we're reflecting on our total calories for the day. We just think about the food that we've had, and we're not usually thinking about the beverages that we've had, too. Mm-hmm. No, and, and that's probably true. So, I mean, does it vary? I mean, you know, how does beer compare to wine? How, how do those drinks compare to, to spirits or other uh, products that are on the market? Does it tend to vary? It's a great question. I'll divide it into, into four categories. So there's beer, wine, and spirits, which we typically think about. But then there's also now we drink a lot of, for example, cider or um, mixed drinks that come in a can. They're ready to drink. 
So those ready-to-drink coolers and this sort of thing, they tend to have a lot more sugar than, in them, so they have many more calories per drink, over 200 usually in a can. Whereas a can of beer or a bottle of beer, it's around 140 or 150 calories. And then kind of bringing up the rear, but it's still quite a lot, is your wine or even a shot of spirits. Those have around 90 or 100 calories in them. Yeah, I mean, drinks where sugar is being added, I suppose, is a little more obvious. Uh, we, we think as, you know, beer is sugar-free. I, I mean, they're, they're not adding sugar to it. But, um, I mean, in terms of how our body processes uh, alcohol, I guess, you know, I mean, is, is there sugar in a way in it? What I can say is that in the ethanol itself, in pure alcohol, there's quite a lot of calories. It's pretty calorie-dense. So even in a shot of spirits, in a shot of gin, for example, or whatever your choice is. There's a lot of calories in there. There's more than 90. And that really surprised me. That's before mixing anything into it, like Coke, etc. So that really surprised me. Just the alcohol itself is pretty calorie dense. And it's kind of, we're adding this on top of the other health harms that we kind of know come from alcohol and we all weigh when we decide to drink or not, like the increased risk of cancer. So, do, I mean, is this information there? I mean, you know, if, if I, there's a bottle of beer that I'm about to drink, that, that there's no uncertainty about how many calories are in it, that we know and, and that information could, could be on the bottle. Yeah, absolutely. It's, right. it's just kind of surprising that alcohol is, has somehow been exempted from nutritional labeling, whereas pretty much every other food or beverage that we can think of that comes in a package, it's mandated to be on there. So if we think about soda, if we think about ginger ale, right, even if we think about, I looked this up, bottled water has to have a nutritional label on it. It just says zero everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so all of these things, it's mandated to, to um, have this nutritional labeling. Somehow alcohol has, has got a little bit of a free pass on this, on this particular aspect. Well, I, I would admit it is unusual because, uh, you know, for example, I mean, Budweiser makes a non-alcoholic beer. Heineken mm-hmm. makes a non-alcoholic beer. Those products have nutritional information on them. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, honestly, I'm well, not they a drinker do. of those, so you're telling me they do, which is which is good. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, just kind of underscores why, why this is mm-hmm. strange. So one product that Budweiser makes does have nutritional information. All the other products they make don't. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I can't offer an explanation for that. It is strange. Uh, some producers are voluntarily putting nutritional information or ingredient lists or the number of calories on their product to differentiate them from other products. Um, so, I mean, the, the manufacturers and producers should be commended, the ones that are doing that. Um, but they're also doing it to try to grab a larger market share. So, yeah. Well, and I think there's something to that. I think I'm, I'm, I think it's Michelob Ultra I'm thinking of, where they, yeah. they really emphasize, you know, there's two people at a bar, someone gets a wine glass, the wine glass sinks into the bar because it's so heavy, and they say, oh, there's only 90 calories in this beer, there's 120 <laughs> in that glass of wine. They, they're really making a big show of it, but they're doing it for marketing purposes. Right, absolutely. It's just so interesting to to reflect on that alcohol has been... Um, kind of exempted from these regulations that virtually all other food and beverages that come in packages in Canada have had to follow. So it's kind of, I don't know, in some ways it's, it's unfair to producers who produce anything except alcohol because they're going up against something that doesn't have to label their product, whereas they do, like 
you know, like cola or bottled water, for example. Do you think people pay attention to that? Do you think people notice those those labels? Yeah, I think they do. I think I think we look at those in the grocery store when we're deciding on things off the shelf. Um, the grocery store, or it would be the liquor store if they were in there. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the calories that you have to spend in a day, you, you want to be able to distribute those in the way that, you know, kind of makes you happiest and makes you healthiest. And if we don't know how many calories um, we're spending on these alcohol, alcoholic drinks, it makes it difficult for us to make informed decisions as drinkers. What about the argument that the information's out there? I mean, I just typed in Budweiser calories and into Google, and there's you know a, a zillion different links with all kinds of information. Because if people want to find it, it's it's there. Is that sufficient? I think there's something to that. Um, I I think I was kind of looking at this as more of a of an equality thing with other food and beverage products in Canada. Mm-hmm. So it just seems it seems odd, frankly, that that alcohol is in some different kind of exempt group from all other food and beverages which have to have labels. Whether or not it would change people's behavior is up for debate. I think it would probably subtly influence people to drink less, which could be good for their health if they decided to do that. Um, but I don't want to tell people to drink less. That's up for each person to decide. It would just help us um, decide between all these different products that include alcohol, but all other food and beverages as well, like what we want to kind of spend the calories that we have on. Would this be a federal jurisdiction, by the way, or do the provinces regulate this? This one, the food labeling is federal. Yeah, okay. So alcohol is kind of interesting. It doesn't have its own act, its own federal law. So we have for in Canada, for example, a tobacco act, and we now have a cannabis act, which many people will know about since it's pretty new. But we don't have an alcohol act, and alcohol labeling falls under um, the Food and Beverages Act, just like many other food and beverages, but is somehow still exempt from labeling, whereas other food and beverages have to include it. So something that we would recommend is, is for Canada to have an alcohol act, because um, alcohol does continue to cause a lot of harm in our societies, and um, additionally, this article is looking at the, the added caloric intake that we're getting and, and maybe not knowing about. All right. Well, some interesting findings. Adam, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks. All right. That's Adam Shirk, a postdoctoral fellow with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. So I would admit, I would fully concede it, it seems like a big double standard, especially when you look at the fact that, that non-alcoholic beer has to have nutritional information on it. So the companies that are making these, in many cases, the same companies that are making beer. So I, that's entirely reasonable. That information would be there if we require it for everything else. And at least people are making informed decisions. I think maybe the hope is that maybe people might drink a little less. Maybe. But at least people would know. I like this text. I like this one from Dave. It says, I measure booze and how many kilometers I have to run. Three beers means I have to run about seven kilometers to burn off 450 calories. Um, people ask me, Rob, why do you run? <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons. So I can earn the, the beer, too. I might feel like having that night. Uh, another one says, Rob, I only drink Michelob Ultra because of the data provided. You know, look, at least they're upfront about it. 
Maybe they're trying to capture that market share among the people who care about that kind of thing, but they're putting that information out there. But this one is interesting. This one from Pat says, Robert, quit drinking at 50. Lost 25 pounds in two weeks and two belt notches. Alcohol seems to be tied to that hard fat located between muscles. I, I don't know if that's true, but certainly, yeah. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who've said the same thing. I stopped drinking. Lost a lot of weight. I talked to someone recently who did uh, like a six-week training program leading up to like uh, kind of a charity exhibition boxing thing. And that's the one thing. No alcohol. A lot of talk about Facebook these days. Uh, a lot of people feeling frustrated with Facebook. Everything we're learning about Facebook's practices, privacy issues. Uh, a lot of people saying, hey, get off of Facebook. Leave Facebook. Get it out of your life. But for a lot of people, it's a big part of their lives. Or at least in terms of, of social circles. How we keep in touch with people. How we know what's going on with people. How we reconnect with people. And I think that there's certainly an upside to it. I mean, a lot of it's kind of superficial, I guess. But I think, you know, if it weren't for Facebook, think about people you went to school with, people who maybe used to work with. Would you have kept touch with those people otherwise? But I think there's an interesting question that of all your friends on Facebook, how many of them are actually your friends? And it's weird, isn't it? Because there may be people that you're really friends with in any meaningful sense. But you know a lot about them. You know, they got three kids and that kid plays hockey and that kid's in dance and they like to go camping at this lake every summer. And oh, they just got a puppy. <laughs> All that stuff you get on Facebook. So what happens when you leave Facebook? Do you lose those friends? I mean, th- theoretically, if someone's your friend. Then you still would have them as a friend if Facebook didn't exist. We all had friends before Facebook existed. Anyway, so I thought this next story is pretty interesting. Um, James Avramenko is a writer based in Saskatoon and has decided he's going to leave Facebook. But he's doing so in a unique way. And in fact, he's turned it into a podcast called Friendless. He is going to, one by one, unfriend each of his nearly 600 Facebook friends. But he's going to tell them why in an actual conversation. People do apparently still talk on the phone these days. So let's have a phone conversation with James Avramenko. As mentioned, he's a writer. He's the host of the Friendless Podcast, the soon-to-be former member of Facebook. James, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. So where, where did this idea come from for you then? You know, it's a funny thing. It's one of those uh, kind of a, a conglomeration of a couple of different ideas. I, You know, the first and foremost was I'd always wanted to do a podcast, but not being somebody who has a, access to, you know, celebrities or any interest in, in a true crime show, I, I figured this would be a fun experiment with a sort of a built-in uh, talking point. Um, at the same time, too, you know, I was seeing a lot of people getting off Facebook or wanting off Facebook for any number of reasons, uh, you know, that you mentioned in your intro or, you know, all these Cambridge Analytica things or all, all kinds of stuff that's going on. And and I wanted to do something that individualized each person because I do feel like Facebook and social media as a whole has a tendency to really lump everyone together and almost make us more statistics than actual humans. And so I wanted to individualize each person that I had made a, um, a connection with and kind of check in with them and see how they're doing <laughs> which is interesting because I, I you know and i was trying to think this for myself so i i don't even honestly know i'd have to go back and, and check how many people i'm actually friends with on facebook but 
of, of those, what percentage would I have interacted with outside of Facebook? What percentage could I phone up and, and have a conversation with? Uh, and, and I don't know, but obviously, you know, there, I think we all have that. There's a lot of people in our Facebook lives that are not really in our lives. Yeah, well, and there's that whole thing of, um, you know, uh, one of the sort of uh, ideas behind it was, um, you know, if you have somebody on their Facebook, but you're not willing to say hi to them on the street, what's yeah, the point right. of having them on your Facebook, you know? Um, it, it isn't, it's not going to really uh, color my life any more or less if I know what their kid's doing these days or what they ate last night, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but I, I get the sense that you're like a lot of us. I mean, you've managed to rack up nearly 600 Facebook friends along the way, yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, and it, you know, and that's actually, so um, one thing that I've actually really noticed throughout recording this show, I'm, I'm on about episode 30, 32 at this point, and um, a lot of the conversations I've had with people with inflated numbers, you know, some people, I was overwhelmed at 600, and, and yet that's, on the smaller side for some of my guests. I have, I've had people on who've had 2,000 connections. And what I've noticed with those kind of profiles is they do a lot of moving. Um, you know, they've, they've traveled overseas, and so they've just said, you know, add me on Facebook, and we'll message, and we'll go for a drink in Australia, and then we never see each other again, you know? Um, and that's something that had happened to me. Uh, I've, I've kind of been slowly working my way east throughout my life. I, I lived in Victoria, Vancouver, Calgary, now South um, and and that's sort of been the go-to easy connection is add me on Facebook and then never speak again. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but 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 you know I I personally really thrive off of personal interaction. I really love talking to people. It's why I'd always wanted to do some form of you know talk show podcast because I I find one-on-one interaction to be um, so fascinating. And I think everybody has a unique story. Um, that Facebook has a tendency to sort of, I don't know what the right word for it is, but it sort of makes everything a little uniform. It makes everything, you know, we have to frame all of our photos the same way. We have to filter it all the same way. And it all kind of just becomes one big mush of a newsfeed. Well, and yeah, and so the, this approach you're taking is, is pretty interesting because it, it's sort of, you know, if we all thought about this, what would it be like to personally call everybody that you're Facebook friends with? It might be easy enough to call your mom. Maybe your mom's actually yeah. someone you talk to regularly. But, um, you know, friends you haven't talked to in years, uh, old bosses, childhood yeah. friends. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was reading even there was someone, your friends with on Facebook who, who used to bully you or, or was a bully. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, it was. I well, you know, it's just <laughs> one of those things where you just you you have uh, you have encounters with people throughout your life, and then I find that Facebook is a bit of a funny sort of sidestep to it because it almost feels like your second life. And so, even though you've had these sort of human interactions, whether they're good or bad, you then you still accept their friend request on Facebook because it yeah. makes this whole other network of, of interaction. And I think that, um, you know, Facebook is sort of the ground floor for social media in terms of, well, if I have a large number here, then I'll have influence. And so if I ever decide to do something creative, then I'll I'll have this built-in platform that I can then sell to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm trying to sort of do almost like a you know, uh, uh, I guess you could call it like oppositional defiant or, you know, the uh, reverse psychology of it. I'm trying to shrink my base in order to gain, gain interest. <laughs> so how many, how many of these conversations have you had so far? Uh, I just finished recording. A, I think it will be, when it comes out, it'll be about episode 36 or 37. So I've had about 37 episodes uh, recorded, 32 out now. Um, 
and uh, and more along the way. <laughs> uh, and have any of them stood out to you in, in any way and that you actually maybe had a meaningful conversation with someone that you didn't expect to or, or anything along those lines? Very much so. Yeah. Um, one of the stories that I, that I keep coming back to just because I, I found it so interesting was um, I had a man on the show named Ben who I... Uh, hadn't seen since elementary school. We were really good friends in like grade one. But then, you know, as happens, you grow up and then you go to different schools and then you just lose touch. Mm -hmm. And we were Facebook friends for probably over a decade, but had never spoken. And so literally the first time we spoke on social media was when I reached out to see if he'd be on the show, Um, you know, some 10, 10 years later and then 20 years since seeing in person. And you know, there's this initial sort of nerves of will there be something to talk about? What, what even, how do we even carry on a conversation? Um, but very quickly we found that there, despite having 20 years of separation, there's still these funny little connections that mean that, that aren't even necessarily just because we went to this school or just because we, you know, we used to eat lunch together or whatever it may be, but things in our lives have happened that sort of mirror each other and and we've had these these unique experiences yet they they somehow echo each other and uh and i find that endlessly fascinating the way that uh you know i almost knew this guy before we were humans (laughs) you know as i like to say you know when you're a kid what are you you're just a bundle of whatever your mom tells you to be (laughs) right but that's (laughs) you know it's the thing too and i wonder i mean are you going to have regrets here? I mean, because it, it, once yeah. you delete Facebook, you're not going to be having future conversations, you know, phone conversations with this guy I wouldn't expect. So in a way, mm-hmm. when, once you start to reconnect with somebody and say, oh, you know, maybe I do want this person in my life. I mean, Facebook's almost kind of like the only way now, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a funny, it's a balancing act, right? Because I, uh, another sort of thought behind it is the idea of having mindful sort of mindfully walking through your own life and rather than mindlessly sort of scrolling through, being truly, truly aware of the connections that I'm building and, and that, that can exist outside of Facebook. There is, I mean, we, I mean, look, you and I, we're talking on the phone. Okay. We have, there's, there's phone numbers, there's email, there's, um, one of the running jokes of the show is we'll unfriend and in the next breath, we'll follow each other on Instagram. So, <laughs> you know, it's true. So, <laughs> so wait, it's so, not, um, yeah. It's not a total disconnection, right? It's only off of Facebook. So are you like deleting each person after each conversation? Or are you just going to try to get through all of them and it'll just be one big mass deletion right at the end of all of this? I do it live on the show. So when oh, we're talking, really? I'll pull up their account and I'll unfriend them. And then we'll do almost like a little micro postmortem of, you know, how do you feel now? <laughs> it's, it's so aggressive, isn't it? Like, it is. I mean, I, the rare times I've unfriended someone, like it was like, I'm really... I've just had it completely with this person. Like it's just—it mm. seems like such a uh, an escalation. It's—it's it's a weird yeah. experience, isn't it? And and that is and that is it's funny because I've always been somebody who's been quite all right with unfriending someone. I, I've never I've always tried to maintain a bit of a separation between you know my real life and my digital life in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I completely understand how those two things become so interwoven because you know your social media. It, personality is is the thing that you've cultivated for yourself. It's it's almost like what you hope to be in the world is what you put out on the digital platforms. And so when somebody unfriends you, it feels like a personal attack. Yeah. It feels like they're yeah. saying you're not good enough for my circle, you know. Um, but but for for me personally, it's 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 always been more about 
how do you say this? It's it, it's never meant as a point of aggression, I guess is what I mean. Um, literally just this morning, I was just kind of cleaning up and taking off a few people. I, you know, I, I say that I want to have everybody, but there's definitely going to people going to be people on the list who I just sort of quietly sweep to the side <laughs> for any number of reasons. Whether it's that you know some of these names stay on the list and they've actually already deactivated their Facebook, so they're just those little blank squares, um, and some of them I just don't know if we'll really have anything to talk about. And I think I think that part of it is fine. Um, this idea of holding on to these numbers and, and maintaining these sort of inflated statistics, I think it doesn't it doesn't help us in any way. And I, I think one element of it is that we have sort of lost our ability to self edit our history and to sort of forget things. And when we when we keep these connections that, you know, yeah, we were friends ten years ago but we're not it doesn't allow us to move on. It's almost like a, it's like a tattoo, you know. Yeah, it anchors you. It anchors you to a moment that you can't, you can never escape. And and the 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 the, the nice thing about it is, unlike a tattoo, you just have to hit a button and you're good. <laughs> That's true. So so far, the people you've reached out to, uh, have they all been willing to play along with this? Have you had anyone just tell you to to get lost? Don't don't phone me. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Really? You know what? I did have a couple people who I reached out to. I explained to them what the show was, and they politely declined to be on the show. And I then very quietly unfriended them. I, you know, I, I with no with no intention of insult or any kind of aggression. It's just a matter of that's completely fine. You do not need to do this. This is an experiment on my side, and you don't have to participate. Uh, but if you're not willing to, then I mean. What's the point of keeping you on my Facebook? You know, because um, um, this is this is now what I am using this platform for, and it, and and no insult if you don't want to be a part of it, but if you stay on, you're going to be a part of it. <laughs> now, ironically, the podcast for now, you you do have. I mean, you have a social media presence, uh, yeah. but there is uh, Facebook.com slash Friendless Pod. So yeah. ironically, right, the the Facebook <laughs> is is one of the tools where people can you know connect with the podcast. Absolutely, and I, I believe me, the irony is not lost on me. <laughs> it is, again, it's like I come back to it, it's that thing of like it's uh, it's uh, the reverse psychology thing of I'm trying to shrink my one base in order to grow the next. Thing, yeah, you that's know? true. But, uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Well, and yeah, it's on on Apple Podcast and Spotify and YouTube and the normal places. It's called Friendless. James, uh, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for joining us here thanks. today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. All right, take care. There you go. That's uh, James Avramenko. Uh, as a writer based in Saskatoon, the host of uh, it's a pretty unique podcast. He calls it Friendless. And you can listen into these conversations as he uh, goes one by one and uh, phones up these people in his life, or at least in his social media life. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.